Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is Between the Lines, an epic comeback. Oh my God, that title is so good. (laughs) (laughs) Epic is back. Epic Theater is a theater company based in New York City. They do all student-based theater work. We had them on before to talk about Nothing About Us, which is a show that they did. We shared some clips of it, and they're back with a new show. It's called Between the Lines, and I'm very excited to share it. Oh, I am thrilled. Um, you know, we're we're trying to get into theater here in my house. I have someone who's interested in theater and we try to catch a few shows. Mm-hmm. So to actually have students and educators here talking about the work that they're doing, that's really exciting. Yeah, it's great. So Epic, they get commissioned by some organization to write a 30-minute piece about a topic. This one is called Between the Lines. It's about the links between housing and school segregation. The students get together for a couple of weeks over the summer and they have a you know sprint to write a show. And what I think is particularly interesting about some of the work that they're doing in Epic is it starts out with interviews. Yeah. So the students take a topic and they've, they dig in. And, and one of the ways they dig in is by interviewing people, either experts or just parents or caregivers. I've actually been fortunate enough to be interviewed for two of their shows now, which has been just like an incredible experience because the students bring such a unique perspective to some of the questions they ask. And then they transcribe all those conversations and then they end up repeating the words that they heard in these interviews as part of the actual show. Yeah, I think it is powerful to have young people engaging in these interviews, right? So I can say that I didn't actively talk about segregation, especially with an audience of adults or across racial lines until I was an adult. And so as a student, engaging in interviews with people who have had these experiences seems transformational at a very young age. Yeah. So who do we have joining us today? Jim Wallert is one of the co-founders and a co-artistic director of Epic Theater Ensemble, and he was with us last time. And then also Delisima Vickers, who is one of the students. She's been working with Epic for a couple of years now, and she was part of the writing team and then has performed at the show. And we'll get to hear her both talk about the experience, but also hear her actually performing because we're going to get to play some clips of the show. So dope. Our young people really dug into the interviews and in the show, they provide us stories that explore redlining, racial steering, bank loans, how sketchy that can be for people of color. Yeah. They do not hold back. So we should probably play and hear from our guests themselves. Yes. All right. Let's take a listen. I'm Delisuma. I work at Epic. I've been working with them since the summer of 2021. And I'm a junior at the Bronx High School for Writing and Communication Art in the Bronx, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And Jim. Yeah, I'm Jim Wallert. I'm one of the co-founders and the co-artistic director of Epic Theater Ensemble. We're an arts organization that's dedicated to making work with and for diverse communities to inspire civic dialogue and social change. It's awesome. And we've had you on once before to talk about a different show, Nothing About Us. But today we're going to talk about Between the Lines, which came out of the Epic Next program, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about, about Epic Next, what it is and how it works. Yeah, Epic Next, it's a youth arts leadership program. It's high school students that self-select to be a part of our ensemble. They work with us over the summer in a six-week summer intensive where 
They are learning artistic skills, but also kind of using those artistic skills to apply them towards their academic pursuits, their pursuits as, as activists. The other part of their work of the summer is that they get commissioned by partner organizations to create 30-minute touring plays about different aspects of education, policy, and pedagogy. And so the students are given a topic, and then they work with the commissioning partners to identify an essential question. And then they do research where they will interview between 30 and 45 education stakeholders, parents, students, educators, uh, lawmakers, policy folks. Those interviews are audio recorded and transcribed. And then those excerpts are woven together with original student writing. And the pieces, yeah, they, they end up being about 25 to 30 minutes long. And we tour them all over the United States and sometimes internationally. And the student artists facilitate a post-show conversation with the audience immediately following the show. Delisimo, you've done Epic Next a couple of times now, right? What drew you to it and and what's it what's the experience been like? Um, so I joined it. It was the end of my freshman year. I had worked with Epic like at that point twice during the school year. So I was familiar with them, but then I got an email that was inviting me to Epic Next. And I didn't really have any plans for the summer. They got me when they were like, Oh yeah, you could you get to write. And I was like, you know what? Sounds great. So I joined over the summer and at first, I was a little bit because like it was something new. I like I had never done like theater or anything like that before theater or drama, and I'm just like wasn't very good with putting myself out there. But you know, in the end, I was able to like learn how to put myself out there more and learn to get in front of audiences and speak and not be like as afraid to like voice my opinions and share. So that's how like I began working with them, and that's why I've continued to work with them. Delisima and Jim, I'm just. Curious, what are the connections between art and activism for you? So art always has been like a medium of like getting a message across. And activism is like one of the messages you could get across, you know, acting. Like when people like make art pieces about specific things, there's a connection because like they're using these forms of art because not everybody's just going to sit down and read an essay about something. And it's not going to click with everybody if like you just like put information in front of them. So if you give it in like different mediums where people are able to like digest it differently and interpret it differently so like if you give somebody an art piece maybe it'll resonate more with them like giving it to them in like a different form can encourage them to think more about it and be more of a way to connect with different people through art yeah i definitely agree with that i think that that art allows people to to make connections between history and their lives in a really potent way i studied world war one in history class in High school, but it actually, I didn't sort of feel like I had a, a deep connection to that experience until I read All Quiet on the Western Front. It, it took that, an artist's lens, an artist kind of using their sense of empathy to, to bring me closer to the, the individuals at the center of that particular historical event and that historical moment. And I think theater in particular, you know, theater makers, I think, are, are really in the empathy business, particularly theater makers, I think, that do the kind of verbatim work that that we do at Epic, where you're interviewing someone, you are capturing that text and that, that person's point of view, and then the actor is interpreting that, that point of view. It's, in a lot of ways, the, the ultimate act of empathy. And I think that kind of empathy is really important when you're talking about you know, social justice work, when you're talking about a different kind of sociopolitical work or policy work. I think that art is, and theater in particular is, is really uniquely 
capable of addressing some of those issues. I'm super fascinated about the decision to engage the audience in conversation at the end of your performances. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned from that? I'm so curious. You know, civic dialogue is at the core of our mission. And so the play is really the jumping off point for the conversation. You know, we never present a work of art at our company without having that public dialogue, without having you know, the artists in the room in conversation with the audience. Our, our conversations are really about the questions and the themes in the play. And how, how do they connect to you? How do they connect to your life? How do they connect to your community and your world? The, the plays are not designed to provide a lot of answers. They're really into to ask a lot of questions and provoke some, some interesting dialogue. And I think this is important because we're trying to encourage people to have these conversations right now, right? That's part of what the goal is of the podcast Mm -hmm. as a place to model the type of dialogue we want to have. And so I'm really curious about the young person who's out there doing this all the time. What can you teach us about how to do this better? Like Jinx, like we're kind of in the business of empathy. So like we make these plays for the people who are like in these cases, like kind of on the front line. So like being able to talk to people and perform for people who like have had experiences with the things that we're talking about in our play. It's important because like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to help represent these experiences to people who may not have had them, but also being able to acknowledge and like connect with people who have been through these types of things to know like that we're getting their stories across like accurately. And you know mm-hmm. that that there are people out there who feel touched about like what we're doing. It's very powerful and like I feel like a very big part of what these plays are for to help people's voices be heard and to be able to connect with the people. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So you interview 30, 40, 45 people of all different races, genders, identities, ages. Can you talk a little bit about like the the act of embodying all these different people? Um, so in a way, it's kind of like pressure because like this isn't something we made up. Like we interviewed people and they're trusting us with their stories and their experiences to share with other people. You agree to like be interviewed, you agree to like share your story and kind of put yourself in sometimes like a vulnerable situation. Like, oh yeah, you're sharing this story about how like you face racism or how you saw this happen or how this happened to you. And then you're giving it to people to share with hundreds and thousands of other people. Mm -hmm. So we're able to give a voice to people. So if you don't want to, you don't necessarily have to put your voice out there, but your experience is still being shared. So it's pressure, but it's also something that feels very powerful that we're able to like share the voices and opinions and stories of so many people so that they don't have to do it themselves. Mm. Jim, can you talk a little bit about what you notice in audience response to that kind of phenomenon? I think back to the last show that we had you on with Nothing About Us, where you guys had taken public comment from school board meetings from white parents that was some really problematic language in some ways. And, and the power of hearing that come out of the voice of a student of color can you speak a little bit about what the audience response to that is? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think when you when you watch these young people who are taking these different words and these different perspectives and these different voices and embodying them with such care and a spirit of generosity, a spirit of empathy, a spirit of love, a spirit of, you know, we, we want to amplify all of these different points of view in this forum together so that we can talk about these things respectfully, you know, civil, civic discourse, I think it's really potent for audience members. A lot of times we are invited into forums following some like really unpleasant conversations that adults have had around topics like Mm. integration policy or school districts that have 
undergone a rezoning process in schools where there have been conversations about parents being uncomfortable about what's being taught in their child's classroom. And we're brought in into these environments and sometimes we get warned, like over the last meeting, there was a lot of there was sort of shouting match that was, that was happening here. People were really getting kind of ugly with one another. And I think the adults hearing young people present these points of view in that way, um, it's clear that they've done their research. It's clear that they understand these issues really, really well, that they have an appreciation for all of these different points of view and that they show it through their artistry. What we found in, in the post-show conversations is the adults in the room are like, oh, we have to step up our game here. We can't, <laughs> we can't just be screaming at each other. We have to elevate our dialogue to match the performers in the room. And we've been in spaces like that where those fights have happened, but those fights don't happen in front of or, or with the youth performers of, of Epic. It's fascinating because that that's telling me adults know how to act. Yeah. <laughs> right? They don't want to act up in front of the young people. And so now I'm trying to figure out how do I get young people in every single room so that the adults yeah. behave? Behave. <laughs> right? that the, is kids the kids are watching. We need The kids are watching. Be on our best behavior, yeah. But we know this already, you know, right. and the idea that children are now mirroring the behavior and the words that they just heard from the from the adults just gives me goosebumps yeah. to think about how powerful that is. So thank you for that. They, yeah. You know, the the last show that, that we shared on the podcast, Nothing About Us, you know, that came from the, the civil rights rallying cry, nothing about us without us is for us. And that's really become a mantra for the students of Epic as they built these pieces. These students are saying, we have expertise in the education system. We're going through it. We're living it right now. And we should be in those rooms where decisions are being made. So that phrase provided the title for one of our shows, but it's really provided the the mindset for all of the work that that we're doing. That's awesome. The piece we're going to share today is a piece called Between the Lines. Can you tell us a little bit, Jim, about how this came to be and who commissioned it and what the task was when you set out to do it? Yeah, this was a commission from the Poverty and Race Research Action Council in Washington, D.C., and they wanted the ensemble to explore the relationship between educational segregation and the United States' historical housing policies. First of all, sort of look into and research what those policies have been and what the enduring legacy of those policies are and how they're impacting students and families' experience of education. And I think that this was a lot of new information for the students in, in our ensemble. Is that right, Delisa? That was sort of your experience with it. Well, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I'll speak for myself. Like, I had no clue. Like, when they kind of, like, introduced the topic to us, it was just kind of like, oh, okay. Like, I don't really know what, like, you're talking about, but so I'm just going to go with it. But that first kind of piece, they showed us the segregated by design, like, website and video. That's like the Richard Richard Rothstein, the video they made out of Color of Law, yeah. It was like, kind of like a slap to the face. We were cheering about all these like different policies here, like about like the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which like, I didn't really know that existed. A redlining. It was all just so crazy to imagine like that this happened and then 
have an explanation for like why things are the way that they are today. Like we live in New York City, we live in the Bronx, we live in Harlem. And like our neighborhoods, like they're not very clean. A lot of schools yet don't have that much funding. We don't get like nearly as many resources as many other schools. But we just kind of like, you know, chalk it up to like, oh yeah, we're in like a more populated area. We're in a poor area. So we're clearly not going to get as much as, you know, these other schools in like the suburbs where they have one big, nice high school that has like everything in it, that has like different like amenities. It has like a football field that's like gigantic. But then to like find out what happened historically to lead us up to this point, it was just also kind of like a slap in the face because it was like, we didn't really think it was that deep, but it really was that deep. And then mm-hmm. the whole good schools and bad schools, now it's really like the next slap to the face because it was like, oh, wow. Like I've just been like unintentionally racist towards my own community by saying things like, oh, yeah, this school mm-hmm. is bad. I don't want to go here because if we're, we're in the Bronx, if we're being realistic, if you go in great schools right now, and look at most high school campuses in the Bronx, none of them are going to be a good school, at least by like the standards of website. So then to really like realize my school isn't actually necessarily a bad school, but to great schools and to like Google reviews, this is a bad school. And then we find out what like they really mean. Like, what does it mean when we say bad school? We really just mean that it's in a low income area and that the student population is mainly students of color. We just found out like a lot of what people say versus what they really mean. You see people talking about like, oh, there's a gang activity in these schools because they see like a group of kids standing outside the front of the school. But you know, if that were a school in a white area and there were just a kid standing in front of the school, they'd be like, oh yeah, that's nice. The kids are congregating and talking after school. But here that's gang mm-hmm. activity. Like that's like, that's suspicious. Mm-hmm. So to really be able to understand like the implications of what we say, it really, I feel like it has changed me. Like, I don't go around saying, like, oh, I go to a bad school anymore. My school isn't bad. It's just racism, like systemic racism. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that because I went to high schools, like the ones that would be described as bad, but I didn't read The Color of Law until an adult. And so I didn't have this perspective as a young person that you have now. You kind of touched on it, but how has it made you feel learning this about your country? your neighborhood, people that, you know, you probably didn't think a whole lot about thinking about your school. I really did find a shock in like systemic racism. We see it said a lot online and we're like, oh yeah, this country was built on racism. This country was built on white supremacy. And it's like, yeah, it was like we have that down. But a lot of people don't know like what was specifically done. So like Mm -hmm. at school, we talk about like this country was built for white people and it was built on the backs of like Black people and indigenous people and people of color, the system was made for white people. But then to learn specifically what was done, like in a way, seems so ridiculous that like it shouldn't be true. But it is. Hmm. It really did change my perspective. It made me think about like what good and bad really means. Because like I, my school, it just had a rating of two on grade schools. But I go to the school. I like it there. Like, you know, we don't have like the most funding. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we have like everything, but we have good teachers. The curriculum is good. They teach us about our history. They teach us about like Black mm-hmm. people in history. They make sure to teach us a curriculum that's like about us. But it's a bad school, even though like I'm able to go to school and feel included and feel comfortable with my teachers. So the fact that people are able to go online and they're able to like make a judgment so quick, like, oh, yeah, this school has mm-hmm. a rating of two. It's a bad school. I'm not sending my kid there. But then they don't go. They just trust these ratings based off of like standardized tests which like, you know, are also like rooted in racism. 
but they don't like really listen to the school community. They don't listen to the people who go to the school. They're always so quick to blame the school and not blame like the DOE or blame like just the country for funding the schools, like property taxes, the way that they do. Mm. So like being able to finally understand why things are really the way they are. Yeah. I, this is, this feels tough to listen to because it's my story 30 years later and it, it should be different, you know? And so thank you for just even what you did right there. You didn't even know you were telling my story, but you were telling my story. So thank you. Yeah. Let's take a listen to some of the show, shall we? It's incredibly powerful. The show opens with a song. Delisa, can you tell us how this song came to be and who's singing it and what the story is behind it? So the song was inspired by our initial research from Segregated by Design. So that's how we kind of got the refrain. The song was written by like a few members of our ensemble at the time. One of them is the one who's in the video singing Ashari. And they did a lot of extra research to throw things in there. So like, even though like it is like a beautiful song, they made sure to also make it very informative. So, you know, like how we were talking about art earlier. So it's like a, a way to like kind of digest, like, oh, you have like this beautiful song being sang to you. But like in the song, it's like there, there's like a lot of information. All right, let's take a listen. Learning our forgotten history, so sublime. What they did to those before me. Can't change with time. They pushed us out of the neighborhood, but I thought in mind. Moved us to the ghetto, poor and ostracized. Did you know, did you know, did you know, did you know? We're segregated by design. Did you know, did you know, did you know, did you know? We're standing on the battle line. They challenged our education. Our people didn't have a choice. Closed all our libraries. There was nothing good for us. We fought so hard for freedom just to regret. While the whites in Levittown Living their lives at best. Did you know, did you know, did you know, did you know? We're segregated by design. Did you know, did you know, did you know, did you know? We're standing on the battle line. The government's like a secret society. Setting all these bills in line. Those in authority, ensuring our demise. They used us to make money, even way back in time. And even now that we live in the land of the free, they haven't paid us back a dime. Did you know, did you know, did you know, did you know? We're segregated by design. Did you know, did you know, did you know, did you know the sad history of mine? There's research that shows that the schools actually drive residential segregation. That is a beautiful song. I'm now like definitely in in the art for sure. And then the next section of the show is a, a little piece called The Color Code. What can you tell us about The Color Code? You're the host of The Color Code, right, Delisa So... Something that we learned at Epic when writing plays is that there's like different elements to the play. So there's the real, there's the absurd, and there's the poetic. 
So the song was like kind of like poetic. And then we have the absurd here, which is like oh, a game show of like racism and historical housing policies. So like our first contestant is a federal government. Then the next contestant is redlining. Then you see the, next, the last contestant is the homeowners loan corporation. So they're being very silly. Like it's funny, but it's not because like mm-hmm. you like you see the way they're acting is very silly. Like, but then like what they're saying is really messed up. Like it's kind of like a silly way to express like how the government, how the homeowners loan corporation have you know set this country back in many, like many different ways, and how like they have sabotaged people of color in America for sure. <laughs> All right, let's take a listen to the color code. It's time for another episode of The Color Code, sponsored by Zillow. And here's your host, Martha Washington. Hello, everyone, ladies, gents, non-binary folks. Welcome to The Color Code, where we rate America's historical housing policies from worse to even worser. Our first contestant may be young, but oh, have they made a huge impact. We all know them, and we all hate them. Let's give a round of applause to the federal government. So tell us, what have you done to make America less black people friendly? You mean, aside from slavery? Well, <laughs> I don't mean to brag, but uh, I single-handedly turbocharged segregation by making laws that prohibited the blacks from buying homes meant for white people. That's awful. Well, that brings us to our next contestant, Redlining. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? You're the man, dude. So, redlining, what have you done to make America less black people friendly? My red lines around black and brown neighborhoods on the maps meant the denial of banking, insurance, healthcare, heck, even supermarkets from people of color. Because they were people of color. Man, I miss the 60s. If only you were still around, the world would be such a whiter place. Unbelievable. Well, that brings us to our last contestant, the one and the only Homeowners Loan Corporation. That's the Homeowners Loan Corporation, better known by his stage name, The Hulk. Okay, Uh, Mr. Hulk, please stop flexing. So what have you done to make America less black people friendly? I was sponsored by the federal government. Under President Roosevelt himself, I created maps and neighborhood ratings that set rules for decades of discriminatory real estate practices. Through YouTube, I was able to selectively raise prices and deny loan applications from black people simply because they lived in neighborhoods deemed unfit. I'm so glad I invented you. We love you, Papa. Okay, let's begin our game. So the rules are pretty simple. We're going to ask our contestants questions about different topics in history. If they get the answer correct, the bell will go. 
And if they get the answer wrong, then the buzzer will go. Got it? Approved. Totally. Affirmative. Okay, great. First topic, reparations. Whoa! Redlining was sort of the backup policy to overt separate and unequal. The vision of these folks was quite remarkable. It's almost like they knew when separate and unequal fell, redlining was the backup to ensure that the separation was perpetuated through our housing policies. We don't have schools now that are officially black schools and white schools, but we do have communities that reflect the redlining of resources. It's been longer lasting and harder to outlaw than the original official segregation. I take the old redlining maps and line them up with current school locations. I found that schools located in formerly red areas tend to have worse reputation than schools located in formerly green areas. They also tend to have less per pupil funding and lower property tax contribution. Human capital is not allocated along zip code. Brilliance is not allocated along zip code. Your capacity is not allocated along zip code, but often your race is. Often your socioeconomic status is. That is something that we have to change. And if we don't change that, we're gonna have more and more pressure on the democracy. It's great. The the absurdity of the game show and you're like chuckling and then grappling with really how serious the topic actually is. And then followed up by some of this, uh, you know, verbatim text that came from some of your interviews. It's really powerful. And uh, you sort of used a similar technique for the next section of the show, Jane Crow Real Estate. Yeah, Jane Crow Real Estate really is an invention entirely born out of the brain of Delisima. Uh, <laughs> uh, Delisima sort of came in and was like, I got it. I, I know how we could talk about racial steering. We're going to have this character come in, this realtor, and she's going to be saying all the right things. And then we're going to hear her inner thoughts, the despicable, awful, absurd, terrible inner thoughts of this realtor. And so this conceit that Delisma came up with is, um, I, I think, a really elegant and, and hilarious way to put the coded language out there and then put the subtext right next to it. Anything you want to add about that, Delisma? Yeah, so Jane Crow, even though in real life I would hate a woman like Jane Crow, but like Jane Crow's like my baby, like it was horrible, but it was also like a very funny experience because it's like, you know, the things that Jane Crow says in the scene are things that we hear every, every day. Like she uses language that's used all the time, but I felt like it would kind of be like kind of jarring to have like the, like what Jim said, like the subtext, like right next to the coded language. So it's like, oh, she's saying this and it's coming out this way, but then like, you just like immediately like have her inner voice like blurting out like exactly what she wants to say. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a listen to Jane Crow Real Estate. So, how's the house looking? Like a dream. I love it so much. Can I hear more about the area? I have two daughters in middle school and I want to make sure this place is good for them. Of course. There are plenty of parks and other safe places for kids to hang out, along with schools within walking distance from here. I'm sure your daughters will love it. One more question. Have you heard about the town right over from here, Greenville? Yes, I've heard of it. I was also considering moving there because of some relatives, but I want an unbiased opinion. Which do you think is a better fit? Well, Greenville isn't urban area, definitely diverse. 
black. Greenville is black. But I think this neighborhood is a better fit for your family. Interesting. Why do you say that? Well, here we have one of the highest rated middle and high schools in the country. You can't have your white kids going to one of those poorly funded black schools with the low ratings. Diversity does not make up for test scores. This town is also known for being incredibly safe and family friendly. It's also known for its wonderful sense of community. Those people are over in Greenville. So how safe can it really be? That sounds like an environment I'd want for my daughters. Plus, the house values here tend to appreciate more than they do in Greenville. Once their kind starts moving into the neighborhood, the property values go bloop. So this house will be worth way more if your family decides to sell in the future. You know, once your kids go off to Harvard. Thank you so much. My family will definitely be moving here. Great. I'll have the paperwork ready by tonight. Thank God I didn't say everything I was thinking. If that lady would have heard, I could have lost my job. Even though I was right. Another satisfied customer at Jane Crow Real Estate. Jane Crow Real Estate. We kind of divorced the racist language from it, but the outcome is the same. So you don't have to say, I want to go to a white school or live in a white neighborhood. You can talk about, oh, I'm just concerned about my property values going up or down. And what you're really talking about is race, but you don't have to talk about it out loud. All these people have very strong progressive identities. Like if you were to meet them, they'd be like, yes, I'm a radical anti-racist. But the moment comes when it's like, can you go to school with this other kids in your neighborhood school? They pushed back. Like it is bananas that you would ever have parents sitting at a kitchen table going, I don't know if we can afford to move to a place with good schools for our kid. Like, I don't know if we can afford good public schools. Like, I don't know if we can afford something that's free. That is a wild conversation, right? That makes no sense at all. We found a way to parcel out the privilege in a system that is supposed to be free and open to everybody. The stark reality is that schools are segregated because white parents want them to be. That must be the client. <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am, are you lost? No, at least I don't think so. This is 1125 Wood Creek Road, correct? Call the police! Who are you? Carmen Blackwood. I'm here to look at this house. This is a home invasion. Oh yes, of course. You just look a little bit different than I expected you to. So, where are you from? New Jersey. No, sweetheart. Where are you really from? What does that have to do with the house? I was just wondering, but... Yes, you're right. Business talk now. So, could you tell me about the house? So, can you tell me about the house? Ah, yes. It's a lovely house. We recently had renovations, so it is a bit pricey. I checked the price on the website. It is very much in budget. No need to get aggressive. What about the area? Lovely area, nice people. That sounds great also. So have you considered a house over in Greenville? A lot of colored folk in Greenville. You'd fit right in. No, actually, I haven't heard much about that area. Well, it's very diverse. Take down the property value somewhere else. My hat is set on Wood Creek. 
Come on, Jane Crow. You haven't been doing this for the past 40 years just to choke up when it's time to tell a colored person to stay in their place. The schools there also have a more culturally accepting curriculum. With less resources, of course. Ma'am, I was really hoping to hear more about Wood Creek, but you're trying to steer me over to Greenville, and it's starting to seem very racially charged. Oh, crap. No, honey, it's not like that at all. I just had to take a personal approach to all of my clients. That's all. Nothing to do with race. Nice save. But I've got another client coming right now, so we can continue this conversation tomorrow. Who are you? Hola, soy Florina. Buscar una casa aquí en Wood Creek. What? Estoy en busca de una casa. Listen, lady, I'm not sure what language you're speaking, but we're in America, so you need to speak English. An immigrant trying to buy a house in Wood Creek on my watch? No way, Jose. Pero el empleado me dijo que mi guía hablaría español. I still don't know what you're saying. What language are you speaking? Spanish. Oh. Well, why didn't you say so? I know a little bit of Spanish myself. Hola, soy yo Jane. Learned that one from watching Dora with my daughter. Esta vieja ya me tiene hasta el tope. No house tour today. Please leave. ¿Qué? Pero ustedes me dijeron que me darían un tour hoy. <laughs> I still don't know what you're saying. Now please leave. I guess that worked. Today was a bit rocky, but that is just all in a day's work at Jane Crow Real Estate. Jane Crow Real Estate. It's so tough because, yo, like there is usually a racist undertone to their sorts of labels, right? My brain knows that. But then I also know that, yo, sometimes it gets wild in certain schools in certain neighborhoods. I'm struggling with this, and probably more so because I had to pick a high school for the twins last year. I don't know if you all are familiar with the philosopher Aubrey Graham, but he said, you know it's real when you are who you think you are. And I was like, I don't think I am who I think I am. <laughs> because it's one thing to say that you actually have these ideals, but when it's time to apply them to your own life, and I'm on the board of ed thinking like, I can't send my kids there, that's a bad school. To me, a good school is really about the cohesiveness of the community. Do the kids feel like they belong? Do the kids feel curious? Are they excited to learn? Do they feel loved by the adults in the community? And like, how do we think about it in a collective way? All the city's kids are our kids. And we have a responsibility as parents to our own kids, sure, but really to all kids. Yes, the, the subtext and the actual text all right in front of us, it feels, again, somewhat funny and pretty devastating to hear it kind of presented that way. It must get quite a response in front of audiences, I'm sure. The next section of the show is called Sites of Judgment. What can you tell us about this? Um, yeah, this was, again, kind of in the realm of the absurd, you know, like looking at these neighborhood and school rating sites like Zillow and greatschools.com. And I think it's just a, a sillier moment with the ensemble. This is, again, it's intense material. It's heavy. I think this ensemble, more than anyone I've ever worked with, kind of took on this topic um, in, a, in a real personal way. And so I think there were moments when we were working on this stuff when 
students just kind of wanted a, an outlet of silliness and mm. introducing those rating sites through like a, a beat poetry. That, that was sort of, I think, a manifestation of that. We've been talking about some really intense, heavy material here. So let's, let's, let's get some silly going. Yeah. All right, let's take a listen to Sites of Judgment. Zillow. Zillow. Great schools. Great schools. The sites of judgment. Judgment. Although you provide easy access to information, I still find you emphasize with a hint of discrimination. You. You. Prove my theory of exacerbation. You. You. The one who gives ratings. You. The one who ranks public schools. Is school ratings the solution? Why rate schools based on test scores only? Why be in a state of inaccuracy? And why please the rich and white only? Zillow. Zillow. Great schools. Great schools. The sites of judgment. Judgment. Zillow and great schools? They ain't nothing but a little bit of digital redlining. The idea of rating schools is really problematic. To have good schools, you have to have bad schools. We don't rate our fire departments. We don't rate our hospitals. Nobody's like, ooh, I'm moving there because the ambulance service is really great. There's like a threshold. It is a public good. It is a service that is provided to our community. Either it reaches a standard that is acceptable or it doesn't. They don't measure what matters to me. They measure on a scale of close proximity to middle-class white culture. What do middle-class white people want? Like, we about to give you a gradation on the scale? We place a high premium on white people comfort in this country. I'm just going to speak about me and my people, white parents. We love, and I think you guys all know this about us. Well, I'm gonna guess. We're not really good about being in community. We don't really listen to people's lived experience and we love data. We just love the metric stuff. And I think that Zillow and greatschools.com just feed right into that. Being a parent is terrifying. And so we're hungry for something to say like, yes, you're doing a good job. And somebody's like, here's a website that tells you you're doing a good job by sending your kids to a good school. It's a huge relief as a parent. These websites do more damage to our perception of public schooling in the United States than really anything else out there. It leads to creating schools that are a commodity that we can hoard. They're a resource that we can hoard. And if they're a resource that we can hoard, the people who can most influence the system, the people who can most leverage their privilege are the ones who will hoard the most of it. There are five times as many school districts as there are counties in the US. There are 32 school districts within a five-mile radius of Camden, New Jersey. There is absolutely no way you could argue that's an efficient system, right? I'm from New Jersey. Picture a map in your head. How big is New Jersey? Not very. It has 600 school districts. Take a few hops out west Nevada. How many New Jersey's could fit in Nevada? I don't know, like a lot? 
Do you know how many school districts there are in Nevada? 17. Like, Maryland has 24. Florida has 60-something. You can draw bigger school districts. It's not magic, right? Like, this is something people did in a room, in a state legislature. And they're redrawing them every day. These things move around all the time, usually not to the advantage of kids of color. So when you draw that line, you're doing something really powerful because you are determining what kids get access to what resources. And if you draw a line around that little red line town, you are immediately reproducing the injustice of redlining in that school. If you draw a school district border more expansively, if you do it the Nevada way, then you're creating a lot more opportunity for fairness. You're not guaranteeing fairness. There are a lot of ways to be unfair. There are a lot of ways to segregate. But if you draw the border small around a redlined town, there's no room to make it better. After this point, the fourth wall comes down a little bit. The students are really kind of sharing their own perspectives. And before we play that section, I'm just wondering, Delisa, if you can talk a little bit about like what, what was the most surprising thing in researching the show? I mean, you, you said that like most of this felt brand new, but was there like a moment from the interview process or from the show creation process that kind of sticks out in your mind? We did one interview and like whenever I think about the show, I think about this one interview in like the, um, the press we were interviewing. She was telling us about like a desegregation order that was happening in the 70s. And she was talking about how they were like busting kids all over Las Vegas in order to like integrate the schools. And she also mentioned the concept of white flight. So she was talking about how a lot of white parents were pulling their kids out of public school and sending them to charter and private schools in order to like escape this segregation order. And it's like, that really stuck with me because this show was like about like what's happened to public schooling because of these historical housing policies. So like where you live determines where you go to school. But the fact like that these white parents were able to take their kids out of school they were willing to spend money just so that their kids wouldn't have to go to school with black kids, like the other children of color in like their city, or like pull their kids out of school and put them in a charter school just so that they, this wouldn't have to happen to the, their kids. And it was also mentioned like in the play, it was like these parents like they'll have like these progressive anti-racist identities, but when it's time to send your kid to like to school, like to their neighborhood school, with, like the other children of color, like, you know, they push back. It's not kind of all connected because it goes back to the coded language, too, when you think about like, oh, I don't want my kid at a bad school. Like, oh, this school just doesn't have what I want, what I would want for my kid. But what they're really trying to say is like, I don't want my kid going to school in a black neighborhood. I don't want like, you know, these kids from the bad part of town in this black neighborhood coming to my child's school. Yeah. What what has been the response? The, the, the show, you sort of originally wrote it as a movie, a film, basically, but now have been putting it on in front of live audiences. How are people responding to it? I could like say for sure that the Jane Crow real estate has been getting the reactions that we've like kind of expected. Cause like Jim was saying, like, since we like, we were very hurt by the topic, we tried to find like, like silly outlets to let it out. So like there are parts of the play that, like, that are like very absurd. So, like we have the game show, then we have Jane Crow, then we have the poem. And you know, like you write stuff cause you want like a reaction to it. Like Jim said, like we tried to like encourage dialogue. So like when you have like these really like out there jarring scenes, it's to get people talking. And I feel like that's been exactly what's happening. Like when Jane Crow happens, like when she says one thing and then her inner voice comes out of nowhere yelling about how she doesn't want a black person in his neighborhood, the audience goes like, oh. Or like when the Zillow poem comes on, like sometimes people like they'll be saying it after, like we'll finish the performance and they'll be like, Zillow, great school, decides of judgment. <laughs> so because of the medium that we're getting this out through, like we're going, like we're putting like kind of like phrases in their heads and they're able to remember it. So you wanted like to get people talking, to get people to relate, to get people to, you know, remember. Jim, if listeners want to support your work or they want to see the show, 
they want to bring you out, they want to incorporate the show into their curriculum, how can they how can they get in touch? Yeah, they can reach out to us through our website, which is epictheaterensemble.org. You can see kind of the menu of all of the different touring plays that we have, touring films, and you can reach out to us and, and we can have a conversation about bringing the work into your community. Um, we also have a book uh, that's come out in the last year called Citizen Artists, A Guide to Helping Young People Make Plays That Change the World. And so that's a text that has kind of Epic's methodology behind building the touring shows, a lot of the curriculum mm. that we use with young artists making works about social justice. And it also, kind of the most exciting thing is it's got four of the text of the plays in there as well. So it's really exciting for our youth artists to be become published authors. That's amazing. We're, we're going to play the last bit of the show here where sort of the, the fourth wall comes down and the students get to share their own personal feelings and reactions to what they learned and what they hope. Before we jump into that, Delisima, is there sort of a main message, a thing you hope people take away from Between the Lines? Um, I'd say to know the history of the country because, you know, people are very quick to judge and like how we've been talking about the whole time and that this is a bad neighborhood, this is a bad school but they're not understanding the reasoning behind it. And then like, they think that like, oh yeah, it's just a fact that this is a bad neighborhood, but they're not looking like what caused it to become bad and what caused like this judgment to be passed and like how there's a lot of racial implications like playing into like their opinions on like different neighborhoods. So I need people to become more aware and people to, you know, like educate themselves and like we're helping with that through this play. We're giving a lot of information in a short amount of time. And, you know, make sure that you don't keep this information to yourself. Make sure to share it. Make sure, like, if you have social media, share. If you have friends or family that you think might be interested, share. If you work in a school, if you work in any community that, like, you think could be benefited by this type of information, then you should share. So pretty much in short, make sure to educate yourself and don't be stingy with your knowledge, please. I love that. That's beautiful. But thank you both for taking the time, for coming on, for sharing, and, and much more importantly, thank you for all the work. Um, I have yet to be disappointed by anything that's come out of Epic. It's always makes me think and you know changes the way I see the world, and it's so nice to dig into some of these topics that we spend a lot of time thinking about, but through the lens of art. So I'm really grateful to you both for coming on, and uh, let's hear the end of the show. Thank you all. When, when I, I first heard, heard, when I first heard about the history of educational segregation in housing, I was mortified and confused. So many questions floated in my head. Does this still happen? How could we be okay with that? Why would our own government go to such great lengths to make sure black and brown people didn't succeed in America? Why did my teacher make a lesson for us to learn about this? I realized how much of my life was depending on where I lived and where I went to school. Everything I experienced going to public school is in this topic. The extremes of how we were pushed out of neighborhoods and prevented from buying homes. Policies that were put into place to make it so difficult. It really hurt. What I, I felt. felt. Shocked. Weird, like I was going back in time. I felt very scared. I was honestly upset. I honestly wanted to cry. It made me question everything I was taught in school. I felt like a part of me was purposefully left out in order to mold me into society's idea of how a black girl should be. 
I started to question exactly what they mean when they label places as good and bad. With this play, at least we're doing something about it, spreading awareness. Becoming more aware actually helped me a bit. What, what I, I want. I want public schools to teach the full history of housing discrimination in America. I want public schools to teach the full history of educational segregation in America. I want to stop funding public schools to local property taxes. I want parents to make choices to end segregation. I want an honest attempt for change. I want change. 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 Tell me how do you win a war when you're afraid to die? So Val, what did you think? I am so inspired. Okay, so their ending, I think, is exactly what we would articulate for our world as well, right? And for them to come to that realization and to write those words based on the interviews they have with folks and to feel like a sense of agency around what they want and deserve, Mm. I think is really important. Oftentimes... I think adults would probably argue that students and young people aren't paying that much attention or that they don't have an opinion that really matters, right? They don't know enough. They don't understand enough. Right, right. And here they are clearly telling us they want parents to make choices to end segregation. That's a big deal. If your kid comes into the room and says, I want you to make choices to end segregation, like how do you respond? Mm. Yeah, super powerful. You know, Delisima talked on about this throughout this, like the, the power of presenting all this information. You get a lot of history in whatever, 27 minutes or something is yep. how long the show is. You get a lot of history. You get a lot of information. It's easy to digest. It like hits you through your heart because it's presented with some sort of absurdity and some comedy and it's art and it really gets at you. But but it's clear, right, that these students have have done their homework. These students have an opinion. Yeah. They're both understanding the historical context, but then, you know, how does this actually impact their lives today? What are the ways that this is showing up? How is this helping them understand their own lives better? And just feels, yeah, really powerful. Yeah. We talked about how parallel our stories are and, you know, me mm-hmm. just wanting to apologize that her story is like mine, but 30 years removed, um, 12 years removed, if you look at my skincare. And so... It was just last year. <laughs> just last year, if you check out my skincare routine. And uh, <laughs> the fact that we can use art to engage people in these conversations who might not be willing to engage in these conversations otherwise. So I think it's very powerful. And they mentioned it as a core of their mission to engage in civic dialogue at the conclusion right. of these sessions. Because oftentimes in art and plays, you're kind of left with these feelings and no place or group of people to process 
for that to be part of the design and for the young people to do the heavy lifting of preparing us for this conversation and then facilitating the conversation, I am just impressed beyond belief that they are taking that on. Because again, they are trying to convince the adults who have the ability right now to make this change to actually be inspired to do something. Yeah. The modeling piece, right? Like they are they are showing that we can actually engage in civic dialogue. These are hard topics. These are topics that tend to get people worked up. And yet, as Jim mentioned, they go into places where people have been screaming and shouting at each other. And then the students show up, present this really thoughtful, well-crafted piece of art, and then engage in a conversation. And, and the adults have to step up their game. Mm-hmm. The adults have to say, ooh, okay, maybe I need to uh, actually try to engage in this with a little more good faith and a little mm. more heart and empathy and humanity. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to want to stay in our head in these conversations. And I think that's something that you and I yeah. do well, right? We're not afraid to embrace our feelings in these conversations. And I think in order to solve the problems that they mentioned at the end, that has to be part of it, right? If you don't feel anything yeah. around segregation, you're not going to be moved to do anything about it, right? We need as many examples of humans bravely stepping into this conversation as we can possibly get. Yes. And if that means following the lead of the young people who are doing the heavy lifting to make sure that we're having the conversation, that is what needs to happen. Their work is deeply thoughtful, creative, meaningful, and that type of that level of conversation is accessible to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I loved how they right they brought up this this sort of theme throughout of like both you know bringing new ideas to people, but then also like using the art to have people see their ideas represented, mm-hmm. right? So that people who maybe don't want to be putting themselves out there don't want to be on stage, you know, reciting a monologue that is their actual life story. There's still like this vehicle for their story to get told that that again creates more empathy, that brings more ideas to the table, that enriches the conversation. Yeah. So you said you've been interviewed by this ensemble before. I was. um, And you've had your words reflected back to you in one of these performances. Like, how did that feel? Did you feel like you're in the twilight zone? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a a deep honor to have even been asked to participate in these interviews. I've done it twice now and every time just been blown away by the quality of questions that they ask and their ability to get quickly to the heart of some really kind of profound things by mm-hmm. asking the right questions and and then just listening and just from the act of having the conversations have felt my own perspective shift and and, mm. and grow and then to hear words that i remember saying co- coming back from the students is yeah it does feel a little bit like the twilight zone mm. that there was something in there that resonated enough with them connected enough with them that they wanted to then take and make part of the show feels like a a real honor yeah art is moving yeah. And hopefully it asks you to move as well, you know, that you are are no longer the same after yes. viewing a piece or experiencing some art, yeah. right? One of the things I really love about, about Epic's work is that it, it is very much focused on, you know, creating artistic pieces and very much tied to, you know, issues that affect us all. In a, the course of a typical week, like I will think about the sort of school's integration work in a very intellectual way. And then I will want to unplug and turn to art as like Mm. a a way to escape and, you know, to be forced to kind of pull those things together Mm. and, and 
look at the ways that art is really, in addition to being escapism, in addition to like kind of, you know, taking us to somewhere new or some other place to, to make those ties back to the things that, that I care about on a daily basis mm. also felt really inspiring. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, it makes me want to connect with others. I mean, that does set us up, Val, nicely for our action steps. Yeah. End of the episode. What uh, what action steps are you taking now after this conversation with Jim and Delisama and hearing between the lines? Yeah. So for sure, I want to privilege art that, that moves me. Yeah. Whether that's visiting museums or street exhibits or young people's performances. Like, how do you find mm-hmm. and or make art that is rooted in this moment? I feel like in my city... I see a lot of that, thankfully. Like, we have a a city where there's beautiful murals and street art. Spending some time in community with that artwork and those artists seems like a a really important step. And to use that as a vehicle to invite others into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I echo all that. And I think also, like, looking for the ways that any art that I'm consuming, that I can can make ties to things that that Mm. feel important and relevant right now. I think there there is a lot of underappreciated current relevant art you know it's mm. the, the life of a current artist is not easy so i think mm-hmm. finding ways to support that and give my time and energy and resources to people who are doing that work feels really important but also mm-hmm. in whatever you're watching or listening to or consuming there are ways to make more explicit ties i think to the, mm-hmm. the current world that we're living in and i think even just kind of taking that mindset into more of the art consumption that I that I do anyway feels like a, a good action step as well. Yeah. And the other one is really listening to young people, answering yes. their questions, talking to them and yep. listening to how they feel about those honest answers. Like we shouldn't be hiding these things from young people. Like I said, I didn't I did not have the conversation that Delisimo was having with people until I was an adult. And they deserve that because this is the world they're inheriting and <laughs> that they're going to have to help us change. Absolutely. And they should be part of the conversation as early and as often as possible. Absolutely. Well, my other action step is to check out Epic Theater's website. A couple of their shows are available to watch online. Really cool. If you are somewhere where you are in a position to bring them out to uh, an event you're hosting or able to go see them in New York, definitely encourage folks to do that. And then buy their book, this new book about youth theater and the power of it. And you can see some of the text from some of the shows that they've done. Uh, Listeners, other action steps you can take, as always, to support this podcast. You can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash integrated schools. Throw us a few bucks every month. Keep this podcast up and running. We would be grateful. That's right. And we also want you to listen and share and engage in dialogue because that's also part of our mission. So listen once, listen twice, share it, talk about it, keep the conversation going. And the easiest thing you can do is hit follow on your podcast app. Make sure you hear (laughs) all of our episodes as soon as they come out. We would also be grateful for any ratings or reviews you could share on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find the show. Fives. Fives. (laughs) Not any ratings. (laughs) We'd be grateful for your five-star ratings on on any episode. We'll be grateful for your five-star ratings. And your voice memos, please talk to us. And your voice us. memos, yes. Integratedschools.org. Mm-hmm. There's a little button on the side that says leave us a voicemail. You can click there or just shoot us a voice memo. Podcast at integratedschools.org. Let us know what's on your mind. What did you think of the show? How are you thinking about art and how it impacts your life day to day? We'd love to hear it. Well, Val, it is, uh, as always, a pleasure to be in this with you. So try to know better and do better. Until next time, friends.